Welcome to episode 15 of the Black Sunday Tapes Classic Horror. We are back with another Universal Monster film. Possibly the greatest sequel ever made. I certainly believe it's the greatest sequel ever made. I've seen this film countless times. I'm of course talking about 1935's The Bride of Frankenstein. Now as I said, I've seen this film countless times. However, I believe for my co-host, this was the first time you'd watch it, Michael, correct? 100%, yeah. It was, uh, I was pleased in a fashion that we're, we're going to get into. Uh, I truly feel that almost every individual sequence of the film, we could probably stretch into an entire episode. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, in an effort not to do that, we're, (laughs) we're just going to, we're just going to glance on a few things and and go deep on a couple others. But, um, it's, uh, it's audacity and scale the the last act of the film crescendos in such a fashion that if you contextualize when it came out is as every bit grand as like avengers endgame or something like it's just huge yeah and it it still stands up today right a hundred percent yeah and you know some of the some of the effects like i you know if you showed 19 year old who doesn't know how to use a rotary phone the effects they they'd be like these are the worst things i've ever seen but if you have if, if you're able to appreciate well whoa when did they do this whoa whoa <laughs> like the, the 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 again we'll get into it a little later but the tinies of it all and then i don't know man just like the the way the way that the, even the physical makeup on on karloff was uh yeah. refined yes. which yeah. at first threw me but i really came to appreciate it's uh its profile, both okay. uh, side and rear, uh, from at, at times, and I went, okay, all right, I kind of get it now. But yeah, anyway. yeah, I I think you've kind of just touched on a good place to start actually with. Okay, let's do that. Yeah, the Carlo- <laughs> the Karloff makeup actually, because this was, and and also the the special effects of this film. We're we're just coming off the back of the Invisible Man, right? So. Yeah. We're coming off the back of one James Whale film that really, really pushed special effects to the point where, you know, when I first watched it, I was like, how the hell they did it? I know you were the same. I know a couple of our listeners out there reached out to us and and said they were really interested to find out how they'd done them effects. What's interesting about this is the same effects team come over from The Invisible Man and done some of the effects in this, like with the little people in the jars. And stuff like that, which, you know, I, I won't touch on it too much, but it was basically achieved the same way the Invisible Man stuff was achieved, filming on okay. Black Velvet and then kind of double exposure and, and shooting, you know, matching everything up, which is incredible for, you know, easy to do now, right? But back in the day, you know, if I mean, you... hell, you can do it with the phone in your pocket right now. But... Right, and, and also... <laughs> 1930, what did yeah. you say, five? Like, yeah, 1935, on. yeah. I mean, if you remember, back then there was no watching stuff back until it was processed 
because they had no idea them effects had worked until they watched back, you know, the processed film, as it were. The okay, processed no, serious question. Do you have any idea how much they would have actually had? Like, they, they were like, we're going to film 30 seconds. We're going to film a minute. Right. We're going to yeah. film 10 seconds yeah. and to test to see if it's going to work. Yeah, I, so I get exactly what you're saying. You're, you do? You're coming, Please help me with it then. <laughs> so you're coming from the point of view of because you can't watch it as it's happening like you would now on a digital monitor. How do you know if the effect has worked, right? And and the truth is you wouldn't. Or like how much, how much would they put, how much effort would they put forth for an initial so, return? So everything like, like, would have been tested. Everything would have been tested. But if that comes out on a final product, not is a, is a completely different story. So they would have tested the effect. They would have shown James Well and Universal that they could do what, because that was that part of the, I, I don't believe that's part of the novel at all, where actually a lot of this that's film leans heavily on the novel. One of the right? things that bugged me every time I watched it was up front, it's, it, it, there's a credit is as suggested by the original novel. I'm like, I've read yes. the original novel. I love yes. the original novel. This is not suggested by the original novel. No, no. But it's the, so the reason why, do you know what, hold on, we're, we're, we're come back to that because that opening with Mary Shelley, Mm-hmm. There is an important reason for that, um, which, which okay. I'll get to. But the the effects, yeah, basically you would not know those effects have worked until we had processed the whole thing. So you could test it to show that it's possible, to show that you could shoot on black velvet and then re-expose that film and match it all up and it, the effect would be possible. But in terms of the film, you, the scene you see in the film, they would have to have shot all of that, double exposed it, made sure it played and then you don't know until you've processed it you might have to go back in and refilm it but yeah so until you until you've shot it really sent it to the lab processed it all you wouldn't know you might have to pick it up the next day and redo it but to go back to the opening scene so that is a not a point of contention but something that people bring up because it is a little bit strange because the the first film does stray quite heavily from the novel and then this second one picks up that idea of Mary Shelley kind of explaining a little bit about the novel. I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. And and I especially because that. Mary Shelley and the bride are both played by Elsa Lanchester. Which I did not pick up until round two. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So the whole point of that is that they're both played by Elsa Lanchester and what it's to show is that Mary Shelley was very much perceived as a pretty person, as as the quote is. She she was perceived as a pretty person. And what okay. James Wow wanted to show was that pretty people can come up with fiendish ideas and that the fiendish ideas we come up with, the monsters we come up with, are influenced by the real people. So that's why he used the same actress, of which he had to, you know, it, that took some convincing, apparently. Universal weren't down for the same actress to be playing both roles. But, you know, he... Really? Yeah, but he, like I touched on the Invisible Man episode, he did not want to make this film. They, as soon as... You did say Yeah. It's, which, is, it's, which is interesting, because it's really crazy, good. Right? It's right, really good. Which is crazy. So it is said that as soon as Frankenstein had its preview screenings, Universal wanted a sequel. The buzz was that high. They wanted a sequel. 
James Well refused to do the sequel. And Carl Lumley Jr. only wanted James Well to do his film. He didn't want any other director. He only wanted James Well. They gave James Well The Invisible Man. He got to make The Invisible Man. He got to make a couple of other films as well. And it was basically in giving James Well the freedom to do this. This allowed him to... This, this then convinced him, sorry, to then go on and make The Bride of Frankenstein. But also in making The Bride of Frankenstein, they gave him complete control. It is said that at this time, no director had this level of control over a motion picture than James Well had over Bride of Frankenstein, especially right of this budget and of this scale. So there were so many things that he got to do that he didn't get to do in the previous one. The sets were so much bigger. The camera movements Most were so definitely. much Yes, the camera movements were, this were a lot more grand. Well, he specifically got to... just because you said the sets real quick. Yeah. Like, one of the yeah. things that, that I noticed immediately was uh, the when they get back to Frankenstein's uh, laboratory or laboratory or whatever you want to call it, yes. um, he uh, the, that it was where in the first one there was like a little bit of a staircase and then like a background painting that, to, to give the illusion of more. It was like, nope, it was a giant staircase. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Yeah, they got to go. Even just like sets that you see once, like when um, Colin Clive's Dr. Frankenstein is being taken back home and they put him on the table just the grand okay you just touched upon that i i need to get to a place in life where i have enough expendable <laughs> fucking income to where my estate will have that room somewhere on it it's like the, it? The, the, the 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 pointed curvature like the, the the arches that are curved i just i loved it so much i ran it back probably six or seven times on the first viewing okay and then every subsequent viewing i just loved it i'm weird like that my god it was just i i, I needed that architecture and then, then you yeah, get more you get a little more of it later and i was like, yes yeah. yes yeah i'm with you i Sorry. it's incredible <laughs> Dude, it's incredible. It's the the scope that he gets to play with on this film. But like I said, that's because Cole Lumley Jr. wanted him. He only wanted James Well. And then because the success of The Invisible Man, that really hit home with him. He wasn't doing this film without James Well. He had to get James Well on board. So yeah, James Well had some demands, man. One of them was them grand sets. One of them was bringing Colin Clive back to play Frankenstein because Colin Clive's alcohol intake had you know, skyrocketed since, since the first film, which, you know, he was an alcoholic on the first film, but during this one, even more so. But, um, you say alcoholic? Yeah, alcoholic, yeah. Oh, but James, okay. James Wells still managed to, you know, get a great performance out of him, and, and that even added to it. And then, you know, in, in all these casting decisions, he was able to bring in, there was a few actresses up for the role of the bride and, and Mary Shelley, but he was very adamant it would be one actress that would play both roles, and eventually brought in Elsa Lanchester to to play those roles, which yeah, I, I really like that opening. I I sometimes forget about it. I was then, thrown uh, by it, but I, yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah, you definitely get thrown by it. But I mean, even that right, like even the grand set of that. The grand set of oh my what God. could be scale. just a throwaway. Like, was, I, my, yeah. like my first real note was, oh, there's the whale scale. There you go. There you go. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. He's you know, he was famous for that. And I think this film shows it, especially within his horror films, this film shows it more than any other film. It really, really does. So let, let's bring it back around a little. Let's let's bring it around to the cast. So you touched on the Karloff makeup, which we're certainly going to get into. But let's start with Karloff's performance. 
within itself because obviously the big difference in the performance here is the monster speaks oh my god all right you said it okay so please like oh jesus if this puts me into some sort of weird minority i apologize but i was really thrown um not when it not when he first started to speak because at first i was like okay all right words little words here there but to the extent to which he then spoke later on really kind of irked me on first view. Okay. That's interesting. It's just, I, I don't know, man. It was like, like, again, you know, it's, it's 1935. So we'll forgive like this, but I was just like, he's just, he, he just goes from like literally a yesterday. He was like f- fire bad. And yeah. then, and then, that, and now he's, he's having almost conversations. I was like, just that quick. Hmm? So, hmm? so strangely enough, it's widely regarded that a lot of people like that the character evolves this way and okay. that he speaks. And actually, I believe some critics during the day really praised it for adding emotion and stuff like that. However, the one person that hated the fact that the monster spoke was Boris Karloff himself. He, <laughs> yeah, he okay. completely, um, he, he really didn't want it to happen, man. He really, really kicked off about it and really didn't think it would do anything however he did come round to it a little bit later on in life his daughter um in some interviews you'll see with her she does openly admit she believes her father was wrong and that the the performance definitely benefits from the speech especially with the i personally like it because it really comes into its own within the scene with the hermit which is my favorite scene in the whole film, to be 100%. honest. One hundred percent. Okay, so yeah. I, I don't want to rewind you real quick, but like, 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 I'm not saying that that like overall I hated it. I, I just, I, I just thought it went maybe a little too far because the exact scene that you're talking about, I love that those two characters are coming from such an emotionally similar and pure uh, core. Yeah, and yeah. and the their in quote flaw is the thing that allows them to have their relationship, and like, I can't tell you how genuinely I smile and laugh every time I watch the smoke, smoke. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was I loved it, right? Yeah. But I just I don't know, like a little later where it's almost literally full conversation, I was like, mm, too much. I'm not I like, definitely I, like, I, like, I hated that like it, that he spoke at all. I just thought it went a little far. I definitely see what you're saying. I definitely see what you're saying. <laughs> it, it's quite an interesting debate because in the novel, he's fully he he fully speaks, right? There mm-hmm. there is no within the novel the monster completely speaks. He he has speech from the very start. So it's yeah. it's definitely something they were to bring into this. But with that said, it's something that James Wow put a lot of effort into. He actually worked with some people at Universal to come up with a very, very strict dictionary of words that the monster could say. Okay. He, there was about 30, 30 words, I believe, that they, <laughs> there's actually a really weird bit of trivia, and, and I'll, I'll say it to you, and I'll see if you pick up on why this bit of trivia sounds really weird. So the words that James Well and Universal picked, they picked about 30 words of which they put into a dictionary. And the way they got these words is they got them from doing a focus group 
and I quote, with 10-year-olds that worked at the studio at the time. That worked at the studio <laughs> at the time? <laughs> right. Right. I'm so glad you burst out laughing like that because I've seen I've seen this bit of trivia come up a few times now and it always amazes me of why the fuck were there 10-year-olds working at Universal? Why, why are we glossing over that? Forget about the fucking speech. I want to know why there were 10-year-olds working at Universal. I mean, it's horrible, but... It's crazy. Man. I, I've seen it. I believe it's on the IMDb trivia. I've seen it come up in documentaries. I've seen many people say, and it's always worded that way, 10-year-olds that were working at Universal at the time. Why was Univer- Why did Universal have 10-year-olds working for them? Well, so strange. Like, they just like 35, right? So yeah. like, nobody gave a, a, no, a fly anything like, about, about weeks. <laughs> nobody gave a shit. So let's actually, before, before we get off of Karloff and the monster, there's a couple of points. I, I think we should just touch on while, while we're here. So within the film he is credited still as the monster however this is where the debate between is he called the monster is he called frankenstein really comes into its own so because the glorious crazy nonsense that is pretorius i hope i'm saying that right because i i heard it weird every time yeah uh is it says the bride of frankenstein just evoking the title and you're like but he's not frankenstein well well, well, is it is he not? See, this is the so some people will tell you he's not. However, and, and I'm of this mindset, I believe it is officially canon that he is called Frankenstein. Purely because of this. So actually there's a there's, you know, there's I would argue you in the original, but here I agree. Yeah, definitely here. Definitely here. I mean there's there's quite a few reasons why you could argue. He's called Frankenstein. Even in even in the original novel, though he's never referred to as Frankenstein, there is a, and I haven't read it for years, so I'm going to completely misquote this. Same, but I but do there, love it. I love it yeah. so dearly. There's a there's something that's referred to as as the creation of Frankenstein, as in Doctor Frankenstein. He is somewhat a son to him. And and in doing it, you would inherit his name, right? You would you would take his name. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. So so there's that argument. But within this film, I I think it's completely undeniable. I mean, if the the some people would argue the title actually refers to the Doctor's Bride. However, I don't think that's true at all. All of Universal's marketing and everything is completely on the monster and his bride. So I think the fact that his title, Bride of Frankenstein, gives that away. But actually, from the very opening scene of the film, when I can't remember what gentleman it is, but one of the gentlemen in a very opening scene refers to the monster as Frankenstein when approaching Mary Shelley, played by... Oh, well, just because I was so put off by how overly theatrical he was. I can't call myself the best at anything. I'm sorry. She doesn't doesn't put him right or anything. So within the film, within the lore of this film, he is called Frankenstein. And then there are other references throughout the film of which he is called uh, Frankenstein and referred to as Frankenstein. So I think within this film, that debate is completely settled for me. You can call the monster Frankenstein, 
That is absolutely fine. But look, if you want to call it the monster as well, that's fine. We're not gatekeeping here. Call it whatever the bloody hole you want, in all honesty. If I was trying, if, if, I, if I came off elitist, that wasn't the intent. I no, was just like, I not. get both sides not. of that argument. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, do. I, I get both sides of that argument. It's, it's quite a strange. It's quite a strange argument when people get like so, um, so wrapped up with it. It's crazy how people can get wrapped mm-hmm. up with it. But the, that, that was just a, a side note, really. The note I really want to get onto, you touched on it from the very start. I adore what Jack Pierce done with the makeup in this film i love that he really evolved not only evolved the makeup from the first film when you first see the monster but actually the makeup evolves throughout the film as if the monster is healing it's incredible man the the fact that i didn't actually notice that yeah it, it it's very subtle it's very subtle but the the monster does heal a little bit as if he, you know, he can heal a little bit faster than... I mean, I noticed it between movie one movie two, but I didn't notice it, like, within the film, you're saying? That's kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, within the film. Right yeah, within the film. And, I mean, just, just from the just from the get-go, right? Like, we've got the singed hair. We've got the... We've got the scars, the, the, the burn scars on the arms. There's a burn scar on the face. Yeah. How did you take it, man? How did you take to the slightly adjusted look? Um, like at first, I was really kind of what, 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 because it was I don't know. It was. Did you not get what they were trying to do with it? At first, I was like, it's way more subtle, and I'm like, oh, okay, it's way more subtle. You know, I settled into it, but it was just, I was just kind of expecting the same, and when immediately they're like, they're just picking up moments from the end of the first film, and. So as, when he pops up out of that water, which can we touch for a minute on the grandeur of that particular set? Like, A, why is there an underground owl? I love the owl, oh, yeah. but why is it yeah, underground? Yeah. And then also, why is there just a giant watery, awesome crypt? I don't even know you what know, to call um, that thing. Like, what is that doing Boris, underneath that windmill? <laughs> like, so you're going to love this. Boris Karloff broke his hip on that set. What? No, really? Yeah, because he, sli- he slipped and fell into the water. He yeah, he slipped and fell into the water. He broke his hip. Like from the way up there. Yeah, like from, and then like and from, for the from rest the top of the film, to the bottom. Yeah, Jeez. for the rest of the film, he had um, yeah, he he had a broken hip, and that's had awful. to manage it all broken hip. Yeah, oh, crazy, right? God damn, that's awful. Yeah, I know. Yeah, insane. And also, um, I can't really remember how it happened, but I believe during the making of this film, Colin Clive also broke his leg. No shit. Yeah, man, it was like it was a bit of a fucking curse set. To be fair. Incredible. They, they, they need to do this movie for the for the next season of Cursed Films. <laughs> Imagine that would be cool, wouldn't it? That would be cool. Yeah. So, um, getting back to the makeup, I believe you said it's me off air. Actually, you said about the one of the things that threw you with the makeup was that he, the face wasn't a sunken. As, yeah. No. Like right? yeah. that's like I that was one of the things that I found so, and ever. Not just me. Everybody finds classic about the image of the close-up of his face. It's like those sunken cheeks yeah. somehow sell the makeup just a layer that that takes it from great makeup to like a hundred percent believable, even though you know it's not a real thing. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. when it comes back, I'm like, whoa, hold on a minute. His cheeks are very full here. I so just, there's there's totally two reasons. For that. So there's two reasons for that. So as we touched on in the first one. Boris Karloff had a dental plate 
on the side of his face, which he was able to remove for the first film. The reason he was able to remove that is because essentially the monster had no speech and without the dental plate, he couldn't speak properly. Oh. So because he had words, oh. he couldn't take it out. But actually, that that's probably the more famous story. But actually, there's a completely other reason as well. When Boris Karloff made the original Frankenstein, he was a struggling, starving actor. Oh, he, yeah, right. Yeah. He was really, really struggling. Now, Karloff was coming off the back of Frankenstein. He was coming off the back of uh, a couple of films of which he become a, a huge star. I mean, as you see right up in the top of this film, he's just universal. We're advertising him as Karloff. Just, mm. you know, his surname. That, that's how famous he was. So come the Bride of Frankenstein, he could afford food basically and he was right. he was living very well so though he was still a slender gentleman he was no longer a starving very very skinny gentleman so in terms of the sunken look of frankenstein yes it is definitely missing that he was in, no artist bay <laughs> right but it couldn't have been because you know Karloff needed to you know he, he was only going to go up he was only going to be able to afford food right and right. Karloff plays frankenstein one more time after this in really? the next film yeah called son of frankenstein last time he made it it was without james well he didn't really want to do it anyway he did do it however he did total sidebar does, does, he does come back for one of the emmett castellas no uh not as frankenstein no no he comes back as another character but not as frankenstein yeah right, he comes back as um the We'll, we we'll, we'll bonus we episode that. We won't talk about. I do love Mister Edmund Costello. Yeah, and he I've doesn't. He doesn't come back as. He doesn't come back as Frankenstein. So he's in the film, but not Frankenstein. All right. Yes, and there's <laughs> another famous actor that plays Frankenstein in that film. But we'll really? get to. Yes. All right. Yes. We'll at that time. All right. Teaser. We'll get teaser. To that. We'll get to that. It's a teaser. But yeah, dude, that's why um the makeup does look slightly different. So that being said, I totally a hundred percent dug the profile both side and yes. rear of yes. the makeup the new, the new subtly different makeup was just like where where again i appreciate the the close-up of the sunken cheeks the, the 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 profile of this is just next level like so like a hundred a shadow just a yeah. shadow puppet of yeah. it would be perfect well it's that it's that big imposing figure right which Again, I won't completely spoil, but Jack Pierce really plays on that in the next film, in Son of Frankenstein. He makes the silhouette even bigger. Mm-hmm. So, Wait, because Boris hey, Karloff okay. is getting, because Boris Karloff's filling out a little bit, when you come to Son of uh, Frankenstein, okay, okay, the sunken looks completely gone. But the idea of a monster filling out, the idea of a monster becoming a little bit bigger, a little bit bulkier. They really, really play that up in the next one, which is quite interesting because what I like about that is there's this evolution not only of the character from Carlos' point of view, but the evolution of the makeup on Jack Pierce's point of view mm-hmm. on on the Carlos version. Yeah, really, really like that. It gets a little bit worse after that, but you know, let's neither here nor there for that podcast. So, on that note, let's jump into the second most famous makeup, the most famous female monster of all time just like the Karloff makeup no secret I absolutely adore this again giant tattoo with this on my arm Elsa Lanchester as the monster's mate as she's officially credited but the bride as we all know her of what did you think of that makeup because that is very very different 
It is, but I also like I, for the same reasons that you kind of love Frankenstein initially. You love the Bride because you understand that they couldn't grow. You understand they couldn't go grotesque. Because of the times, and also you wouldn't really want to, and they have to sell, blah, 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 blah. But the fact that they took a very attractive, um, well, a, a very attractive woman and silhouette and dress, but also t took it into a, a, a macabre place without yes. going weird and, yeah. and pr proportionally bizarre. Like, the, 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 the proportion that's weird is the hair. And nothing else. Whereas the proportion that's weird on Karloff is the forehead. Yes, that made yes. sense, right? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> you're right. They don't go as grotesque on this, and that was definitely by design. Universal didn't want to do that. Universal did not want an ugly female monster, as it is said. I, I think if they did go that way, there's no way this would be as iconic. True. There is definitely well, something I agree. to be said. I'm not going to say true, but I yeah. agree. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said within that. And also what's quite fascinating about that is when you really dig into that, look, that was that was decided by men at Universal. However, it wasn't just men that didn't want to see a grotesque female monster on screen. It, it was women of the time as well. Women really, really brought into this. Women really liked the idea of the representation of the bride. And they wouldn't have been as sold on it at the time if she was a lot more grotesque. I feel like what they do with it, like you said, it's a very macabre look. You can definitely tell that she's a monster. She definitely fits in yeah. with the monsters. Yeah. But they also do play with Elsa Lanchester's beauty as well, you know was yeah. to be expected back in the day. But actually, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in this case because well, back in well back then you couldn't exploit right. back then that you know. It, the the exploitation of film didn't come around until the 16th century. You literally couldn't do it. Actually, so much so that that opening scene was heavily cut. The the opening scene of her as Mary Shelley was heavily cut. And the reason it was he heavily cut is because the Hayes Code at the time asked Universal and James Wells to make several cuts that were of a medium shot or close-up of Elsa Lanchester as Mary Shelley because they deemed her dress too low and they dreamed that the dress showed off too much of, of her chest, which is crazy when you look at it today, right? Because it, because it shows nothing in, in today's light, but back then couldn't show that at all. Couldn't have that. This, this film, we're getting to it a today little bit more, but this film was on any television show, on yeah. any G rated or general audience or whatever your local, I don't know. I don't know the world's rating system, but anyway, it's nothing. And yeah, now, and back then it was yeah. just a But total... back then you couldn't, yeah, they, they completely had, they had a lot of this film cut, which we'll get into. But um, yeah, the opening scene, that's why it was cut. It was very heavily cut because of, um, because of the dress she was wearing and they deemed it way too sexual. But in terms of the bride, the makeup, I, I really want to touch on the makeup. I, I think we're going to get into Elsa Lanchester's performance because she's in it for a heartbeat, man. She is not in it at all. However, she has become... Kind of spoilers. I mean, actually, hella spoilers. Like, I was annoyed that only because you said that right now. I was like, I was doing a little research for the initial film and had managed to avoid spoilers this far in my life for anything really involving oh, yeah, yeah. Bride of Frankenstein, and had some shit spoiled for me, which I really didn't appreciate because it was right before we were about to watch it. That's true. But yeah, uh, yeah. 
it's it's called the bride of frankenstein she's in it for nothing she's the colonel kurtz oh god is it kurtz yeah kurtz yeah <laughs> she's the colonel kurtz yeah, of this film <laughs> but i again again i'm gonna put my hand on so i don't think that's a bad thing in this case because no, they they not, save they save the reveal for when they need to have the reveal now i do think that this is ripe for a reboot or a make, remake that really, really focuses on the bride a lot more. However, I, I feel like I for the film twice in the last like five years. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but the film we have, I don't think that's a mistake because she is the holy grail. She is what you're building to, and yeah. I feel like you you have to hold that. You have to hold that fucking card, man, until you are ready to play. It. And when James Wan plays it, he fucking plays it right, and it hits. It fucking well, it's hits. Disney, sure. Yeah, and and it's and and I think her performance is great. We're going to get in a performance in a minute, but for me, with the makeup, I think I think it's great because it is macabre, the very pow face, the scar that just goes under the chin, which mm. it is said that Jack Pierce took nearly as long on that one little scar as he took doing Karloff's whole makeup, of which Elsa Lanchester did not um, appreciate. Karloff Karloff loved. Jack Pierce. Elsa Lanchester hated Jack Pierce. She, um, okay. yeah, there's there's some stories out there where she said uh, she did not get along with him at all. Jack Pierce, you know, by this time had created the, you know, most famous monsters ever put to screen. Oh, sorry, I just, you can use this if you're not, but like, oh. I just can't even imagine really like somebody I don't get along with is touching my face for like eight hours a day. Fuck yeah. off. Yeah, I know. Like, I know. no. Yeah, she just um, she she. There's a famous quote where she said that he acted less like a man and more like a god because of the characters he had created. Okay. And yeah, she um, she said that she had done films before. She wasn't a very successful actress um before she had done stuff, but she wasn't hugely successful. But you know, she had done stuff, and she said that normally you would turn up and the makeup artist would be somebody you, you would hardly even recognize until they started doing your makeup she said but she'd turn up in the morning and you'd know jack pierce turned up because he wasn't so much a makeup artist he turned up like a surgeon in his white overcoat <laughs> and his glasses really? and his gloves which you know you you you've probably seen if you've um listened to the the other podcasts and see the images i put up of jack pierce yeah he definitely had that look but yeah she didn't get along with him at all but the the birdcage hairstyle, the which was a James Wow thing as well. We touched on before a lot of these makeups, especially Frankenstein. It's debated who come up with it. It's actually very, very well known that with the bride, it was very much a James Wow Jack Pierce co-creation. James Wow had his, he wanted the hair a certain way, he wanted to look a certain way, and uh, Jack Pierce got to go in there and touch stuff up and and really bring it to life. Bema. I think I think it's absolutely incredible. And to swing it round to the performance, I think she does an incredible job. I, I think the film kicks off 100%. with the Mary Shelley stuff. I think she's great as Mary Shelley shows a completely different style of acting. But I think when the bride comes to life that you know, the famous shots of her looking around the laboratory where she's not really sure what's going on is great. Is. Like that, yeah. it really it like it was very striking to me. Yeah. Like, what did you think of the hissing when she first sees the monster and she starts hissing at him as he's about to pull the lever? My genuine first reaction was, she hisses like my cat. Right, right. 
that, that, so that, that was my reaction to be honest with you <laughs> so that is um she she actually says where that comes from so they she spent a lot of time in england and she said that she used to go over to regent's park here in the uk and feed the swans and she said that when you would feed them they'd be perfectly fine perfectly tame but if you got too close or too close to their young the females would start hissing and that's what she that's what she based it on yeah she based it on swans hissing at you so yeah she thought because the bride at that point would be very animalistic that she wanted to add stuff like that in there yeah but that um yeah man i i think she's i think she's absolutely incredible so we touch on Carl off. We touch a little bit on Colin Clive, who not too much to say about him in this film. He basically plays the same role as he did in the first one. Again, though, despite being a raging alcoholic at this point, I think he's great again. Elsa Lanchester, amazing. However, maybe the standout for this film that doesn't get touched on a lot, but you've brought him up a few times. Pretorius. Played by He's amazing. Ernest, yeah, played by Ernest Fessinger. Amazing, right? Absolutely, like, and and not like him more. I don't something think. I I do want to touch on. It's not fully confirmed, but something that has heavily been debated in in the following years is one of the. Gonna go. You probably are. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go on. No, where do no, you think no, again? No, no, go on. Where do you think again? Because all right. Go on. I was a, a, a few lines in into him, yeah. and what solidified it for me was the scene where. He, he he first bombs in after the, the the brilliant cape blowing in the wind, and he's trying to talk to our buddy Frank, yep. and he's like, "It's a private matter," mm-hmm. and the, the 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 look on his face was like, "Leave us, woman!" Yep. I was like, "Oh, this guy's a gay icon." Yes, and yes. I I didn't get to do almost any research, but in the little bit that I did, because I was so taken by his performance, I did read that it, it's it's heavily rumored as to whether or not he may have been bisexual though he was married to a woman so it's it's widely considered that Ernest Fessinger the actor was gay uh, okay, okay. Uh, it's very common I don't know if you know this actually but it's very common knowledge that James Well was openly gay at the time and long story when... short didn't know that until kind of recently okay. but it doesn't surprise me yeah so when he got to make this film he put a lot of that in it. There is some suggestion that the monster himself is gay or bisexual or leans that way. Um, well, since we're touching on that, Hermit, let's be honest. Like, like it, that's that's a thing that's like an or in general is yes, like like yeah. the reason that like you know people who identify as in quote other. Uh, identify so much with horror is because the, the the villains are always considered in quote other even though they have their reasons for being whatever they are yeah definitely now oh, i i should say before we go any further that this is all rumored it's been speculated by scholars and people that research film um the the most concrete we have to it is james wells official biographer it said that is not the case and james well didn't put that in the film okay. however there has been suggestions of certain stuff that was in the screenplay that the Hayes Code cut before they even shot the film. So for those that don't know, back in the day, you would have the censors look at your film twice. You would complete the screenplay, and before you even went to production, you would have to submit the screenplay to be approved before you could even start filming. 
Bride of Frankenstein from the outset had a shitload of stuff cut from the screenplay, which is amazing because actually in the film it turns out far worse than what it did. In the <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and then when they actually made the film, they the original cut of the film was over 90 minutes and they had to cut about 15, 20 minutes out of the film yeah. because, um, because of Wait, certain so, things. So the way that, that contemporary Hollywood wanted fucking under 100, they wanted under... 75 or something because this was 75 right well this was it wasn't that they wanted 75 minutes yeah it wasn't that they wanted that it was just they demanded that so much be cut so there's there was certain things like i said the opening of the film was far longer but they had to cut quite a few shots of mary shelley because they considered her dress too sexual and it revealed too much of, of her chest there was some very there was deaths that they even deaths that happened off screen that were suggested they believed that the suggestion was far too graphic so they had to be really yeah there there was a lot of stuff like but then there was stuff in the screenplay as well man like there was actually a lot of stuff in the screenplay that you got to remember that at the time religion was everywhere right Mm. and it was it wasn't like today where it's openly debated there is nothing wrong a little bit yeah yeah right there is nothing wrong with today you saying i don't believe in god back then you could not say that shit right you you couldn't even touch on that so much so you couldn't even suggest anything that went against god so for instance in the screenplay there was there's a line in the film where pretorius it's in the crypt when um is it in the crypt? I can't remember when it is. It, there's, there's a line in the film where Pretorius says about the bringing stuff to life and, and stuff like that. And there's a line where he says, and your Bible stories in the original mm, yes. screenplay. Yes, 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 yes. So in the original screenplay, That's that when he's line. Trying to sell, uh, oh, he says, if you believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he says, if you believe oh, if in you your like Bible stories. If you heard your Bible stories. Yeah. yeah. In the screenplay, that was Fairy's House. If you believe in your fairy tales, funny thing was that once they had, so then they rewrote it, right? They they rewrote it to Bible stories. Back in the day, once you had submitted that screenplay and then it got approval, once you shot that, shot those words of which had been approved, they then couldn't be changed. The guy that was responsible for changing the line, having them change the line from fairy tales to Bible stories, said that once he saw the film and saw that the absolute contempt that Ernest Fessinger delivers the Bible story lines with, mm-hmm. he just wished he left it the other way. <laughs> he said it's far worse now with bit. the Bible stories. Yeah, the other one was but that was genuinely. Just like it, the, the 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 balls of that delivery of that yeah. being the yeah. thing that yeah. I was watching, like yeah. I just I chef kissed at at, yes. at the audacity yes. of that. Like I just I loved it. I love the it. the other one that they done, which which again they they couldn't change because they had already approved it. Is in the there's a shot in the film where when the monster's rampaging through the graveyard and he pushes over a statue of mm. a bishop. Mm-hmm. And in the original screenplay, what that was, was he approached a statue of a crucified Jesus Christ and didn't understand it was a statue. And he just thought it was someone that was being crucified the same way he had. So he pulls the statue of Jesus off the crucifix as if to save him. But 
they wanted it changed because they didn't want the monster to interact with oh any I wish you could see my face right now. That that would have been so amazing. Right. Like, so then so then they I would have spoken to me. This would have been my favorite this this wouldn't have been my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. If, so, if then, so then, oh they my god, really? They completely That's changed wonderful. it to where in the screen Which is awful. Just wrote that he pushes over a statue in the cemetery. Now, in cemeteries at that time, the only statues you got were religious. So right. the statue he ends up pushing over is a statue of a bishop, which is completely worse. Which is completely worse because this is now the idea of the monster you know destroying religion right where before right. it was him saving and now it's far worse but they'd already approved it there's nothing they could do well, about. let's be honest here it also at the time in the picture doubles down on on a similar theme where uh earlier with the dr pretorius making the the tiny little people uh you know the the, the first person they create is queen and then well a queen needs king yeah. and the next person they create is so disdainful that they deem him an archbishop so so they just decided king queen and then the the next person that comes along is so disdainful of everything they were like you know what that's a religious iconography person right there yeah. we need that person to be somehow religious so they go archbishop and then later on you get the scene we were just discussing and yeah you can't you you you, you can't argue that their you know, correlation is not causation or causation is not correlation whichever way that goes but there's you could argue for probably the length of a, a college paper about this. Oh, you you definitely could. You definitely, definitely could because um, there there is so much to dig into. There is really, really so much to dig into that you could, yeah, you could dig into it for days, man. You could pick this apart, and especially when you start getting into what was cut and what they wanted changed, but what actually made the film, which was yeah, which was incredible. There's there's so much in this. There's also stuff in this film that they wanted cut. It got cut from the screenplay, but they ended up shooting a version of it, which then completely made it through the the century board. And that actually comes back to, I'm, I'm going on a bit of a sidebar here, but someone asked me about this on Twitter recently, so I'm going to just bring it up. But it was the idea of, so Hitchcock done it, right? Hitchcock done it in Psycho. There was a lot of stuff in Psycho that Hitchcock wanted, uh, that the censors wanted changed. And Hitchcock, very famously, there was a day on set where he brought all the casting, all the crew in, and it was purely a day of which the censors were going to come down to set and they were going to refilm these scenes that they wanted changed. And Hitchcock brought everyone in. And the censors were meant to come in. And when the crew and the cast and that were like, right, should we all get ready? He was like, no, don't do anyone's makeup. Don't turn on any lights. Don't get any cameras ready. And they said, well, what do you mean? And he said, they're not coming down. And they said, but they are. The censors said, and he said, no, they're not coming down. He says, censors just want to think that you're listening to them. Censors just want to think that someone actually cares about their job. They're not going to change anything. About quarter past nine, the censors went there and he told everyone to go home and they get to keep the film as it was. So it, like, that's the famous story from Psycho. But James Whale was playing the exact same game it's, it's, back it's in 1935. That's something. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you know how to play people, when you when you know the game, the the Hollywood game. But yeah, it's incredible. But let's, uh, Dr. Pretorius, man, what did you think of, um, what did you think of the overall performance and 
yeah, how dare? Because I knew that was one of the things that really hit you in this, right? That's one of the things that really stuck with you. It's just I, 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 I can't even really elaborate enough on how much that dude made me smile and giggle and love what I was watching more and more every time I watched it. Like, it's such disdainful hot camp. And like when he decides to stay behind and just have a snack in the crypt. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I love how into a beaker he pours, he pours himself a shot while offering Frankenstein. He's like, would you like some gin? It's yeah. my only weakness. And then he's dining in the crypt later on. He's, would you like a cigar? They're my only weakness. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. just, I was like, oh, this guy is amazing. Yeah, and he's so, he's so like, good. I, yeah, I just need to look up more Udo O'Connor. I need to look up more him. Oh, wait, wait, we're going to get to it. We're going to get to it in a minute. But the, the last thing I'll touch on with that role is um, it is widely considered that James Wilde wanted Ernest Fessinger to play that role. However, Universal were considering two other actors for that role. Now, just mm-hmm. imagine this. Claude Rains, Bela Lugosi. But, 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 <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. What? What? Um, yeah, imagine. Okay. I mean, they would both be very interesting. And of those two, I'd... Sorry, not sorry. would rather the Claude Rains version. Oh, but, um, no. No, we're good where we are. We're where we are. <laughs> we're where we are, isn't it? All right. So rounding off the cast with a few of the side players... I told you last week that one of your favorites from The Invisible Man, Udo O'Connor, mm-hmm. you were going to see her pop up again. She, mm-hmm. she maybe has as much screen time in this film as anyone else. Again, a real James Well player, and he really got to bring her into this film and, and use her to, the, you know, the best of his ability, the best of her ability, really play up that comedic element at the start of the film and then throughout. What did you think, then? You know, where at first in The Invisible Man, I found it a little grating. Just like I said, like The Invisible Man was kind of like a a rough first watch for me just because it was the most theatrical. But where I found her a little grating initially in that this, I was just like, oh, no, this is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. Yeah. Um, Down to, it's it's been a while since we had a good fire or something. (laughs) And... Like on a, on a nerdy, giggly level, I was like, "Well, this woman's clothing is awfully clean for someone who just mobbed their way to a fire." Yeah. Like, but I just love I the just, way she turns I, up everywhere. Everywhere, she's just like she's just in every scene at the beginning of that film, isn't she? Mm-hmm. You just have no idea how quickly she moves. <laughs> she teleport Jason's like our Friday the Thirteenth, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And on that, um kind of another player from the invisible man ee clive turns up in this policeman in the head policeman in the invisible man oh, turns up that as the, so the happy. It, took, it took me about two seconds to recognize him yeah and i was like wait a minute is that and as soon as he as soon as he built to the crescendo of yeah you all should go to your homes go to sleep yeah. i was like oh it's that guy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, he's he's so good. He's so good. And the hey, the can last we person agree that we need to bring back the term burgermeister. Oh yeah, definitely. It's <laughs> such a good term. It's such a good term. It really is. It needs to be brought back. Yeah, it needs to. We're I'm I'm doing it, man. I'm I'm going to put it in a film one day, and you're going to play it. 
And I'm you're okay going to play it. That's, 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 okay where going. that's where we're going with it. <laughs> and, and I'm going to have my makeup guy make you look like E.E. E. Clive as well, because you can't do it without it, right? You know, it has, okay, it has you to be. Give me the E.E. E. Clive, like, like, brow and nose, but you yes. give me the hair and clothing of the dude who played Renfield, but in this film. Man, so that's rounding out the cost to me. That's rounding out the cost to me. So Dwight Fright is back. Amazingly. Completely different character. I so know. Oddly, right? So oddly I enough, I didn't recognize him at first. At first, at first, at first. Yeah. yeah um. Yeah. And then you do, and it, then you get into it. But what was so interesting to me was one of the what I took a note about his character without realizing it was him, because of everything that was going on in the film, which is very prestidigitational. It's been like very look at me. They were like, where is he? And then this dude just leaning on the tree, doesn't even like have any reaction other than just to kind of point and cock his eyebrow. And I was like, yeah. bro, that's so natural. That is like, that is so natural of a performance. So, so oddly, you know, out. I was touching on the cuts and he actually played a much larger role. So, so within the film, he still is a serial killer, right? They, oh yeah, this is no life for a murderer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he, so in, I believe it was like in, in the middle of the film, as you get to know him you really get to see him as a serial killer where he goes and murders his aunt and uncle and then blames it on the monster. And this was meant to really gauge sympathy for the monster. But this was considered way too graphic, way too much for the day. So, yeah, that completely got cut. And that got um completely lost on the... You know, a lot of these scenes I'm talking about, by the way, they did get shot. Like I said, there was the yeah, first no, screen of this film was that, yeah. over 90 minutes long. But as far as I can tell that that's never that cut is never ever made it to to the light of day and I, I don't know if that footage maybe exists in the universal vault somewhere i would love to know if it does but it's never as far as i know it's it's never turned up anywhere that cut of the film has never been released but um but yeah there was a, a original 90 minute cut and that was that was another scene that um they deemed too much and was cut but yeah i agree man i think the white fry is great in this i think that he shows off a completely different side of his acting to everything else we've seen him in so far. But yeah, man, he's, um, you know, it's funny. The first time we saw him, you said, you hope he pops up again. He's, he's basically popped up in everything, hasn't he? He's, he's so yeah. good. He really, really is. Just, oh, he, he, he makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I think he's Love great. To, to, to have just, like, picked this guy's brain for even an hour once, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So the last person I am going to touch on, I'm going to run a cast out with Valerie Hobson, who plays Elizabeth. Now, you may have noticed, you may not, that Elizabeth is a completely different actress in this mm-hmm. film. She is now a brunette and not a blonde. We, in our Frankenstein episode, brought up that actually one of the standout performances for us was May Clark as Elizabeth in the first film. Unfortunately, uh, legend has it that May Clark was very ill at the time, so she couldn't return. They did bring in another actress for whatever reason, didn't change her hair colour to make it match. I I think once you get over that, it doesn't really matter, if I'm honest. I, I kind well, of think be the honest, performance they don't give the character much to do. Yeah, the performance still works. And uh, yeah, Valerie Hobson, I, I really like her performance in this man. And she was a very, very new actress. I believe she was only about 17 years old. When she starred in this film, she doesn't look 17. She, you know, like we touched on in the Invisible Man episode, everyone looks far older than, than what they were. 
but yeah, what did you think of her performance and especially taking over from May Clark, who we both very much liked in the original? I really enjoyed her performance quite a bit. And also, you know, the way the camera treated her, I don't, I don't know how else to put it. Like she reads really well on camera. Yeah, yeah, she like does. like yeah. that, that, that wavy hair, that, that glassy eye, just that, that, that classic Hollywood, you know, dame was just, it just, it just oozed off of her. Like yeah, really see, good. Yeah. 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 I think she really, really works really well with what she's got. Unfortunately, like we keep saying, she doesn't she have too much to work with. Well, touching back on Dwight Fry, I was genuinely unsettled by a scene involving him. Um, when uh, Pretorius was trying to talk around, like, go murder me, one of those disposable women I hear about. Oh, yeah. And, you know, ladies just walking down the street, and then Dwight Fry's like, ah, I'm going to just strangle you. And I was really kind of, like, it made me very, very, very uncomfortable, even though it's not gory in any way, yeah. shape, or form. Yeah. Much in the fact, I don't know, did you ever see, man, what was that, uh, Luther? The TV show Luther? No, I never did watch it. No, but... Um, yeah. There are very few things that that have genuinely unsettled me when it comes to like 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 filmed media, and two of them have been television. One of them was an episode of American Horror Story. We can get to some other time, but the, the, this episode of Luther, this woman's just walking, and this man is trying to sow chaos throughout a city, and so he's just walking along as well, and then grabs her by the wrist and looks at her, and she looks a little confused and shoots her in the gut, and then walks away. Right. Okay. And I was just like, "Holy fucking what the? No, no, no!" I did like I was so much more undone by that than almost any filmed like gory evisceration thing ever because yeah. it was subtle and it was real and it was fast. It it was real, yeah. and that's how I felt about that scene. <laughs> I'm with you, man. It is very. That is a very very unsettling scene. I I think it actually works. For me, it works very, very well. It's very unsettling because of the stuff that precedes it, especially the way that Frankenstein is being lied to by Pretorius. He, right? He's being he's being completely lied to. He he doesn't know where they're getting these body parts from. That they're actually murdering people to get these mm -hmm. body parts. He thinks that they're getting them very much in the same way he got them. Well, also, one. like, just touching on body parts, like, let's touch about the fact that when he, when, when Pretorius was in the crypt, he just got a skeleton, which is to imply that the bride was built musculature around a skeleton. Well, also, also, I, I don't know if you noticed this on, on your watches, but he grows certain parts of that body, right? Like, the brain is completely grown. The brain isn't taken from any monster. He, he... Because that's that's his thing, isn't it? He can grow. He just can't get scale right. But right. he, there is a lot. I can't remember exactly what the line is, but it it alludes to the fact that he grew the brain. He like this brain was completely grown. It was just the the heart and stuff like that that he couldn't really master and, and get his head around. But okay. yeah, I think that's very very interesting. Again, something that was very complicated for the censors that they are very much playing playing god and very very aware of it in this film you know and very much against it in in the sense of like in the first film frankenstein is i think this is a difference right in the first film frankenstein is trying to play god that implies there is a god frankenstein mm -hmm. is just trying to be he or she but in this film 
it's implied more God is fictitious, God isn't real, it's mm-hmm. all science, and I'll become that version of God you think exists, right? That That's like he's sort of thing, that's where the whole original fairy tale line come from, and then Bible stories and you know, stuff like that. I think that is far more sinister. Mm-hmm. And yeah, quite... um quite unsettling in a way like when you when you really buy into the psychotic nature of it so the last bit from me dude that like i have to bring up because on every show we've done so far i mean all classic horror shows but especially universal monster stuff i always bring up how much i appreciate you you as well how much we appreciate the score mm-hmm. i believe that the score composed by franz waxman for the bride of frankenstein is the greatest Universal Monster score. Very, very possibly the greatest classic horror score you're ever going to hear because it is so grand. It is, it is like most scores that you hear from this era, even all the way up to like the 50s, 60s, they're, they're almost the same thing, right? Like they change, there's little bits about them, but they're almost, you know what I mean? They all come from the same piece of music. This is so grand. You've got the opening, the opening scene, the, the Mary Shelley scene. We we keep on about. There's a different score with that. The individual characters all have their own scores. The monster has his own score. Pretorius has his own score. Frankenstein has his own score. The bride has her own score. They each come in at different different sections. One of the things I really really love is what is the bride score. You actually first hear that. In the tomb, when Pretorius is talking to the monster about the bride and talking about creating a mate, you first hear that score. Then, that's mm-hmm. when that score first comes in. Then you hear it later, and you're like, "Oh, okay, that's what it is." Now, the reason why I think that is so important is yes, there was stuff that was along those lines before this, and I, I could be completely off base on this. I could be completely wrong, but for my money, this is definitely the first time I noticed it. I would even say maybe is the first time this was really done where a score was given to each individual character. Like a, a really okay. noticeable score was given to each individual character. Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. Now, it might have been done before, but I don't think it was this notable, noticeable. I don't think it was this. It, definitely done, it was definitely present in theatre, but it, uh, I don't yes, know about film. Yeah. Yeah. But it, was never, it, it never really took off in a way I think it takes off in this film. And the reason why I think that's so important is because that would then become kind of part and parcel with things like star wars like in star wars right you mm. have luke's theme yeah. you have vader's theme you know the imperial march you have leia's theme you you know two more modern films like the harry potter films you have hedwig's theme you have voldemort's theme you have mm. the you know, i think this can all be traced back to bright now it might not be the first time I they've mean, done it even like like I, definitely the the score i love is the lego movie i'm sorry i didn't mean yes. to cut you off no, like, the score yeah, i truly love is the lego movie because, like, I'm a huge Mother's Ball fan going back to, like, Rugrats but when I was a kid and didn't even know what, what, you know, like, Devo was. But the fact that, like, almost every piece of music in that movie is a version of Everything is Awesome is just yeah. awesome to me. Right, and I think, I think the score, the score for this was, it was incredible. Absolutely. It was absolutely incredible. Really well, incredible. and the reason I laughed when you brought up the the the, the, the brides theme yeah. is because the, uh, the the bit that I teased you with off air is every time I heard that theme, it bears a resemblance in my brain to uh, the theme for 
I Love Lucy, the crescendo yeah. Yeah. is almost yeah. identical. Yeah. And it, it to the point where I was I was about to not bring it up right now. Yeah. But even as I had it going completely in the background, wasn't looking at the screen in any way, shape, or form, didn't even remember where we were in the film because I was concentrated on the notes that I was looking at, heard that piece of music and went, Well, now I have to say it. No, you because have I yeah. just heard it. Yeah. The score in this speaks for itself, but Franz Waxman, the the composer himself, you know, he dude, he worked on some stuff, man. He was okay. It's funny, he was a composer. Like I said, I didn't get to do much research, so please. Yeah, he, he was a composer on a lot of stuff, but he was also just part of the sound department on a lot of stuff. So two, you know, two films. So actually I'll, I'll name a couple of films. So he was the composer on a film called Suspicion, an Alfred Hitchcock film with Cary Grant. Have not seen it, am familiar. Right. Great score. He was also the, he was part of the music department, so somewhat responsible for the score and, and the sounds within the film of Rebecca and Same. Sunset Boulevard. Oh, I love Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, man. So, like, you know, this is, again, like, we keep touching on people throughout these films that go on to really, really solidify what a lot of people consider classic Hollywood. And I don't think these people get enough credit. They don't, you know, they're they're the type of people that you don't really bring up now and again. They're the ones that you don't really think of yet, like we've brought up every show. And this is why I really, really, really wanted to do the Universal Monster stuff, because I feel like it didn't only influence horror. It didn't only take horror to this completely new level. It took Hollywood to a completely new level. Well, you know, and, and on a very real level, like, I am actually mean to stomp over you and cut you off right now because, like, I have thanked you personally, but leave it in. Thank you for finally forcing me down this hole because it's one that I've meant to go down uh, for a very long time and was trying to make happen this year theatrically and then this year turned into this year yeah. and I can't think of a better way to have done it than this. Oh, definitely. So, thank definitely. you. No, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. And you know what? Like, oh, no, no. Thank you for, thank you for joining me on this because this is a, a, a real, real. I mean, you, you know me. We, we've we've been out for quite a few drinks, you know. When I've been over in LA, yeah, and you know, we spent a good few hours just geeking out the films and and drinking and talking oh, to ourselves. The dude's and, brewery. Yeah. Oh man, that was that was the one. Right. We're, we're doing that again. We're doing that again. But um, oh, yeah, dude, you you know how passionate I am about this. You know how geek I am about this. And you um, you know, like I think one of the first things you said to me is, you meet a lot of filmmakers, but to meet a filmmaker that's so geeky and geeks out as much as i do on this stuff but yeah i mean i've waited to do stuff for ages man and i couldn't do it unless i had someone to bounce off like you so yeah thank you so much man you're you're as important to this as anyone else and and you guys and girls out there listening as well you know thank you for allowing us to make this happen but you know i said to you michael when when i were to get this going if we've got one or two people that listen every week it's worth it enough right we're gonna do it oh, I, I agree yeah, Just we're lucky enough to have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. Exactly. I mean, don't, but do. Yeah, <laughs> definitely do. Definitely gonna check it out. There's some very good. Uh, there's some very good stuff on it, including some early interviews with me, which um, yeah, is always worth a laugh. Yeah, but um, and, but yeah, and, definitely and, gonna check and, out Michael Show. He's got some good stuff. On it's very long. Very, very yeah, long. Very, yeah, <laughs> different, different style, but um, some good stuff on it. Actually, some really good filmmakers that um, you've highlighted on there and. You know, Michael's got a couple of upcoming filmmakers he's going to highlight on his channel. So definitely check that out because those filmmakers deserve a spotlight too. 
without yeah. a doubt. Yeah, man. Um, the last thing I'm I'm gonna kind of end this podcast on for me anyway is I think this goes without saying, but this film also essentially ends with one of the greatest lines in cinema history. Uh, and, and and I think it's quite funny because there is a, a bone of contention with some people about the monster speaking in this film, the monster not speaking in this film. The one thing I will say this film will always have going for it, and the, the reason the argument that a monster should speak is because the monster within this film is responsible, in my eyes, for one of the greatest lines in cinema history, one of the greatest deliveries in cinema oh, history, despite Boris Karloff. It took me a second. Now I'm getting yeah? you. Oh, no, no, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Let's see. Despite Boris Karloff's absolute protest, uh, not wanting a monster to speak, he fully commits and delivers, which I think is the perfect line to end this podcast on. We belong dead. That, that's it, right? This yeah. is it, the delivery, the placement in the film. Oh, so good, man. Dude, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really enjoyed this episode. I, I, I've been wanting to get here for ages. I, I love Bride. Like I said on the top of the show, I think it's the best sequel ever made. Up there with Godfather Part 2 for me. There it is. Yeah, this is this is one we're coming back to, man, because there's so much we need yeah. to dive into. There's so much more yeah. we can touch on. But yeah. Dude, thank you so much. Thank you so much, everyone out there, for joining me. That's it from me. Anything else from you? Uh, just uh, everybody, take care of yourselves, please. Uh, I don't care where you're listening. Um, let, 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 let's treat this pandemic like it's real. Uh, Definitely. And uh, keep yourself as safe as possible, but also relax as much as you can. And I've talked too much, so take care of yourselves. <laughs> and on that, horror hounds, stay very safe. Bye.